You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. All right. Good morning, everyone. Like Pastor Matt said, my name is Jordan Poor, and I serve as the Director of Worship and Youth here at Liberty Church, and I'm also, like he said, a seminary student uh, studying to become a pastor. I'm also the father of a one-month-old newborn baby girl. So if this morning's sermon sounds like the incoherent ramblings of the chronically sleep-deprived, I apologize. Don't worry, that won't actually happen. God, please don't let that happen. (laughs) All right, I am genuinely honored and humbled to be with you this morning and to preach from God's word. We are wrapping up our series called The Coming King, where we studied the prophetic Psalms from the Old Testament that anticipated the advent or the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And on this New Year's Eve morning, we'll be looking at Psalm 110, that same passage that Pastor Matt did the kid sermon from. Do you care to hear an understatement? For many of us, 2023 has been an incredibly difficult year. We've lost loved ones, had financial struggles, had alarming health diagnoses, career disappointments, broken relationships that are just not getting better. And that's not even to mention this low hum of anxiety that we all experience due to ongoing global conflicts, the truly appalling and outrageous state of politics in our country, and the incessant barrage of news, 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 24 hours a day, seven days a week, none of which appear to be going away anytime soon. It is natural to look ahead to 2024 and hope things will be different. This is the time of year that we even resolve to make changes. We make our New Year's resolution. We say things like, this is the year I'm going to eat right. I'm going to exercise more. And surely by mid-May, I will have washboard abs. This is my annual delusion. Maybe for you, it's this year, I'm going to focus on self-care. I'm going to dust off that hobby that I've neglected for all of these years. I'm going to establish a work-life balance and make more time for my friends and my family. This is the year I'm going to crack the spiritual code. I'm going to read my Bible every day. Really read it. And I'm going to pray without ceasing. And my walk with God will be filled with zeal. And each day will be better than the last. This is the year. This is the year. It will all be different. Just like we thought it would be last year. And the year before that. This annual bout of naive optimism happens to the best of us. But what I'll posit to you this morning is that what's even worse than that naive optimism is the soul-killing cynicism some of us experience. We don't resolve to do anything. We don't hope for positive change at all. We walk around all but singing the song, what's the use in trying? All you get is pain. When I wanted sunshine, I got rain. It's a terrible thing that I didn't sing the chorus to you there. It's like holding in a sneeze. I'm sorry. The truth is, there's an awful lot of reasons to be cynical. 
but there is no honor in it. I think the comedian Stephen Colbert is right when he says, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but is the farthest thing from it. Because cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world because we're afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. Many of us, myself included, choose cynicism as a shield against grief. And there are an awful lot of things to grieve. But as Christians, we must not grieve as those who have no hope because we do have hope. Christians should not go about their days with naive optimism or a cold, cowardly cynicism. Rather, we should, as Pastor John Piper says, have a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. That is what it means to have hope. It means to have a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Liberty Church, I hope that you make resolutions this year. You should for hope for good things this year. But if you resolve to do nothing else, resolve to do this, behold the coming king and let his confidence be your own. Behold the coming king and let his confidence be your own. Psalm 110 can give us a confident expectation for something good in our future. So this morning, as we read Psalm 10, we are going to look at three things, our king, our priest, and our confidence. Our king, our priest, and our confidence. So let's dive right in. Let's turn our attention now to God's word. Follow along as I read aloud the word of God. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may hear your word and receive it with joy. Bless me with both the humility and the boldness necessary to preach it. Prepare us now to be strengthened and changed by your word. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. With all this talk of crushing kings and corpses, Psalm 110 can feel like being doused with a bucket of ice water after just finishing the Christmas season. It feels like visions of sugar plums and jingle bells and frosty snowmen are like a million miles away. But I wholeheartedly believe that Psalm 110 is the exact scripture that we should dwell on as 2023 draws to a close and we look ahead to the new year. 
It might interest you to know that the book of Psalms is the most frequently quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And Psalm 110 is not only the most quoted psalm, but the single most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Clearly, what we are diving into this morning is extremely significant. This psalm confounded the rabbis of Jesus' day, and as we read it here today in the 21st century, much of it may be puzzling to us as well. It's very poetic. There's a lot of imagery. But to the early church, this psalm, as one commentator put it, was full of treasures. It was a great source of hope and confidence. And it's my prayer that it will do the same and be the same for us today. Reading Psalm 110 is sort of like eavesdropping in on a conversation. There are three individuals present. There is the Lord, David, and the Lord. And there are two different speakers. At certain points, David is speaking. And then at other points, the Lord is speaking, or at least one of them is. Verse 1 lays all of this out for us. It begins by saying, the Lord says to my Lord, all three individuals are present in that one verse. There is the Lord written in all caps. This is the Hebrew name Yahweh, the distinct personal name of God that God has given to himself. That means I am who I am. So this verse says, Yahweh says to my Lord, when we know this is a Psalm of David, David being the author. So we know that the word my refers to David himself. Therefore, we know that the word Lord with only the L capitalized is not referring to David. And here's the root of the rabbi's confusion. David didn't have a king because David was king. But here we clearly understand the psalm to be saying, Yahweh says to David's king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The solution that the ancient Hebrews came to understand is that the Lord, with just the L capitalized, in this psalm must be referring to the Messiah, the king who God would raise up from David's offspring, according to 2 Samuel 7, who would be greater than David, who would be a son of God, who would save God's people, and to whom every king will bow down. The Messiah is the coming king upon whom the Israelites' hope rested. I don't want to bury the lead here. The king in this passage is Jesus. (gasps) Nearly every reference to this psalm in the New Testament testifies to this fact. And this is the foundation of why this passage gave such confidence to the early church and can do the same for us today. As one author put it, the one this psalm foretells was for the Israelites a hope, but has become for us a reality. So let's learn about our king by looking at the imagery in verses one through three, one at a time. God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand. To sit at somebody's right hand is to place them in a place of honor. It's a seat of honor. And Jesus in this moment is being given the highest place of honor possible because to sit at the right hand of the holy, sovereign, almighty God of all creation is the highest place of honor, period. There is no place higher because there are none higher than God himself. Jesus, in this moment, is given all authority. 
He sovereignly rules and reigns over and above every king and government, over and above every soul that has ever lived, including you, including me. Not only that, but he sovereignly rules and reigns over all of creation itself. There has not been an atom in the universe from the moment of creation until kingdom come that does not bow down and confess that Jesus is Lord. If I were explaining this to my two-year-old daughter, I'd say, he's the boss, applesauce. But like any leader, his lead does not go unopposed. The Lord goes on to say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, just like we learned earlier from Pastor Matt, a footstool by contrast to the right hand of God is a place of disgrace. It's a place of domination. Often, as we heard, ancient Near Eastern leaders would humiliate their defeated enemies by stepping on their necks or stepping on their heads. We even see an example of that in Joshua chapter 10. In verse 2, we then see David now speaking to his Lord Jesus, describing to him an image of God sending from Zion a mighty scepter, a symbol of governmental power and authority. Zion is a hill north of Jerusalem, and it's where the temple was located. This is where God's presence was located. And in verse 3, we see the people of God then rising up to join in this battle. When we take all of these images and we put them together, what David describes is a prophetic image of God sending from his very presence, Jesus, to rule as a king in the midst of the the enemies who wage war against him, the enemies who God will dominate and make his footstool. When we think of war, we think of battles fought in flesh and blood. But the war God is waging is not the conventional type of battling that might come to mind. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians reminds us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Praise God that we do not have to engage in physical acts of flesh and blood battle against those who oppose him. But we do live in the midst of a battle. And as we see in verse 3 and in the passage from Ephesians, Jesus' battle is our battle as well. There is real evil in this world, real darkness, and it wages war against us as God's people. Evil, the wickedness of the world, the decay of death, your own sin. These are the reasons for the brokenness in your life. Your broken relationships, your addictions, your depression, your constant fear and anxiety, your chronic pain, your besetting sins, death itself. These things are among the enemies of God. And what does God have to say about his enemies. God compares his enemies to furniture. These things that trouble us, God has made Jesus Christ's footstool. And that matters because as one pastor and friend of mine put it, in the throne room of the king, no one pays attention to the furniture. 
seen rightly in the light of this psalm, the evils that you face are nothing more than something for Jesus to use to step up to the highest place of glory. Now, saying this is not to diminish or dismiss the very real, very painful things you face. You might hear me say this and be saying to yourself, well, that's great news for Jesus. The more I suffer, the more glory he gets. It sounds like I got the raw end of the deal. Maybe you feel like you're the one who's been getting stepped on. Like you're the one who's being crushed. If that describes you, stick with me. Because Jesus Christ is not only our king, he is our priest. Look again with me at verse 4. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Once again, we have the Lord in all caps speaking to Jesus, and he is not mincing words. God is making an unbreakable vow with Jesus Christ that he will forever hold the office of priest. Priest's primary role was to serve as mediators between mankind and God. The people's sins separated them from God, and the priests were responsible for offering sacrifices for sin according to God's law in order to restore their relationship with God and make peace with him. But the Lord is not saying Jesus will be any typical run-of-the-mill priest. This brings us to Melchizedek, a shadowy, mysterious Old Testament figure who emerges only once in Genesis 14 and then is discussed once again here in this psalm and a final time in the book of Hebrews. Melchizedek pops up in these significant moments and just as abruptly as he appears, he disappears again without much explanation. I wish we had time to dive into the character of Melchizedek, but we don't. So quickly, here are some things that we do know about Melchizedek. His name translates to mean king of righteousness. He is the king of a land called Salem. Historians and theologians agree that Salem is an ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. You can even see the word Salem in Jerusalem. This is And Jerusalem, as we remember, is the city where God's presence dwelt among his people. Salem means peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. In addition to that, Genesis 14 teaches us that he is also a priest of the Most High God. The title Most High God is only ever given to the God of Abraham, Yahweh. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which means Jesus, like Melchizedek, is both a priest and a king over God's people. These two offices are forever linked and they work in sync with one another. It's not like he takes his priest hat off and he puts his king hat on or takes his king hat off, puts his priest hat on. They're always in sync with one another. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But unlike Melchizedek, Jesus' reign as king and priest will last forever. The author of Hebrews says, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here we see the author of Hebrews quoting Psalm 110 directly and identifying Jesus as our high priest forever. So Jesus will serve as a mediator between mankind and God forever. He is responsible for offering a sacrifice for sins that separate us from God forever. He is eternally making peace between God and man. How does Jesus do this? How does Jesus make this peace? Well, peace is only ever possible when fighting comes to an end, when the war is over. Jesus secures our peace as our priest by winning the war against his enemies as king, by making his enemies his footstool, by crushing evil and sin and death itself. But how can we be sure he won't crush us in the process? We know this. We know that we're safe because Jesus crushed his enemies by being crushed himself. I said earlier that Jesus's battle is our battle and that it's not a battle of flesh and blood. And that's true. However, the battle was won with flesh and blood. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus, being God himself, became a man. He took on flesh, and that man was crucified. Jesus made peace between God and man by the means of his own blood. Now, through Jesus, our priest, there's no more need to offer sacrifices because because he lived the perfect, unstained by sin life that we were supposed to live and made himself a once and for all sacrifice through his death on the cross for us, for you. Jesus's priesthood is a better priesthood than the one established in the Old Testament because it is absolute. It is eternal. And this is what gives us hope. This is the sure and steadfast anchor for our souls to cling to, that the debt of sin we owed is forever paid. Through Jesus, we can draw near to God. And as if that wasn't enough, the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, fifteen, describes the God that we can draw near to. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So are you weary? So was Jesus. Are you weak 
so was Jesus. Are you tortured daily with temptation to sin? So was Jesus. Are you lonely? Are you hurt? So was Jesus. We shouldn't be afraid to draw near to God because we have a God who sympathizes with us. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants you to draw near to him. His intention is not to crush you, but to give you rest. Friends, the throne on the right hand of Yahweh that Jesus, our King, is invited to sit at is a throne of grace. Jesus is our King. Jesus is our priest. And finally, it is in Jesus where we must find our confidence. Look again at verses five through seven. It says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In these verses, we have David speaking again. And David is now speaking to the Lord, Yahweh, about his priestly king. He's saying, the Lord is at your right hand, and this is what's going to take place through him. This is what Jesus is going to do. One of the striking things about this psalm is how little of it has to do with David. Psalmists, including David himself, frequently make reference to themselves. They talk about their experiences all the time. They ask God for things. They talk about what they are about to go do or what the people of God should do in response to God. A few examples just from the handful of Psalms that we covered in the sermon series. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for you. Psalm 126 says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Psalm 89 says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. The Psalms convey deeply personal emotion and relatable human experiences all the time. And they help teach us to pray and to respond to God. This is one of the things that makes the psalm such a gift to us in prayer and in worship. Pastor Eugene Peterson said, The gamut of emotions experienced in our, home in, in our human condition is given full expression in the psalms. We pray through each psalm and hit every note, sound every tone of feeling that we are capable of, and learn to be at home with all of them, end quote. But Psalm 110 is different. There appears to be very little personal or emotional sinews for us to connect with it emotionally or experientially. So why is it so often quoted in the New Testament? 
Why did the early church connect with it so much? As stated before, the early church rightly saw Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy. But as we went through this Advent series, we saw plenty of proof texts that could have been used to point to Jesus as the Messiah, not to mention the countless examples from the books of the prophets. Why was Psalm 110 in particular so encouraging to the early church? There are likely dozens of right answers to this question, but the one I would like to posit to you this morning is that Psalm 110 allows us to behold our God. When we behold something, we don't just give it a passing glance. We hold it fast in our attention. Beholding our God means to fix our eyes on him and meditate on who he is and what he has done. Because when we catch a glimpse of the immeasurable glory of God, when we're confronted with his awesome power, when we bask in his grace and mercy toward us, it changes us. What we see in Psalm 110, when we behold our God, is God's confidence on display. Verses 5 through 7 do not describe a battle so much as it describes a slaughter, a massacre. The kings and the chiefs over the whole earth are not merely defeated, they are shattered, irreparable, utterly ruined. And what is the Lord Jesus doing while this war is raging? Verse 7 says, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. What is Jesus doing in the midst of the chaos around him? He's kneeling beside a brook drinking, refreshing himself. He is unconcerned. He is unthreatened. He will lift up his head. You see, the position of the head in scripture tells us something about the temperament of the person. Often the image of a head unable to be lifted up denotes hopelessness, helplessness. It describes someone who is defeated, whereas the lifting of the head describes bold confidence. Brothers and sisters, I can promise you this. 2024 will bring with it moments that will cause you to feel hopeless, helpless, and defeated. There will be moments where your head will hang low. And in those moments, Liberty Church, I pray that you will do what David does in this psalm. Behold your king and your priest whose head is lifted up. Don't settle for confidence in your own ability to make this year good. Instead, behold your God. Trust in him. Hope in him. See his confidence and let his confidence become yours through Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first of all, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you find Liberty Church to be a hospitable, loving community where you can bring your questions and your doubts. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm sorry to say, the only hope and confidence you can expect is whatever you can muster up in yourself. Your choices are naive optimism or cowardly cynicism. But what I hope you choose instead 
is to accept what Jesus Christ offers to you today, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, because it's only through Jesus' finished redeeming work on the cross that you can have a confident expectation for good things in your future. And it's only through Jesus that you can find the strength and confidence necessary to endure the disappointments and grief of this life. I hope that you don't leave here today without talking to someone about how all of this can be yours. For the ancient Jews, Psalm 110 carried with it a promise of the coming king. They knew this coming king would restore their hope and their joy and their peace and their love. For us today, it carries with it the good news that this promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We know because of the resurrection of Jesus that he was the coming king promised to God's people. And this coming king promised he will come again. Revelation 22 says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. We long for your return. We long for heaven. But until that day, Holy Spirit, bless us with confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Bless the remainder of our service. We give you all the glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.